Amen. Hey, Grace, come here. Grace, who is leading us in worship, is heading off to college, to Iowa. And uh, so we're going to miss her, but we wanted to lift her up in prayer. Lord, I just thank you so much for this girl who has been such a blessing to us as a church and as she uses her gifts. And now we're excited to see what you're going to do as she goes to study speech pathology and um, just to serve you how you see fit. Lord, please just go with her. We thank you for loaning her to us and we offer her back to you for you to use in a mighty way. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going through the book of Matthew, and we're getting down towards the end. We're at chapter 23 today. You know, when God first came to Abraham a couple thousand years before Jesus, and he said, I'm going to bless you so that in you all the nations of the world will be blessed. His whole plan was, I'm going to make you my people So that other people all over the world, people from every country, will be drawn to me through you. And that sounded like a good plan. But after 2,000 years, that hadn't happened. In fact, at this point, as Jesus was finishing his earthly ministry, the Jews had failed miserably at what they were called to do. They were not a blessing to the world. In fact, Judaism was collapsing before their very eyes. It would just be a couple of decades later when all of Jerusalem was wiped out, the temple was destroyed, the Jews were chased all over the world in what they called the diaspora, the dispersion. It was, they had failed miserably. And at the core of their failure was the leadership. And so Jesus would often have, you know, brush-ups with the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, because they were the ones that should have been clarifying and introducing people to God's love for them. But they were doing anything but that. So now in chapter 23, you see Jesus pronouncing woes on the scribes and Pharisees. But he isn't addressing it to the scribes and Pharisees. In fact, they had had their tangles And pretty much they're out of the picture. They're ready to kill him and it is what it is. Who he's talking to in chapter 23 is his disciples and the people who were following him. Because his concern was, hey, right now we're starting a whole new revelation. I am in a few days going to give my life to purchase forgiveness for everyone. And I want the whole world to know about this. But you guys, if you become like the Pharisees, you're going to mess this up. People will not get the message clearly if you become like Pharisees. And his concern was deeply that they not repeat the example of the Pharisees, but instead they would proceed to represent him the way that he chooses to be represented. So as we look through this chapter, he is reminding all of us as to how he will be represented if he, wants to, if he is able to draw people to himself. The Jews were successful at chasing people away from God. He says, 
if the same thing happens to you, it's going to be because you are acting more like Pharisees than you're acting like me. So powerful, important message. Remember, it's, this is Jesus' last week. Everything he's teaching on during this last week are things that are vitally important for their survival and what God would be doing in their lives. So he felt, you disciples need to hear this, so we certainly need to hear it as well. Um, Plus, we're going through Matthew, and chapter 23 is here this week. But let's go ahead and look at what he said. It says, verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples. Not to the Pharisees, not to the scribes. He was speaking to the people that were left, who were following him, including his disciples. And he said, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. You know, they're proclaiming and declaring the law. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. But do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. Wow, that's weird. He said, I like what they say. I just don't like what they do. People don't believe what they say because of what they're actually doing, which is in contradiction to what they are saying. They don't practice what they preach. These are people who go, they say the right things, but then you look at their example, and it's a powerful rebuttal to everything that they have said. What a, what a, a horrible declaration about you. You know, there are people who say, well, don't follow what I do, just listen to what I say. A lot of times parents will do this with their kids. And the kids go, well, wait, why are you this way? And they're like, well, because I'm the parent, that's why. Just do what I say. I remember years ago when I was running the school over at Calvary, and I would often, kids would get in trouble, and so you have to call their parents in. And I can't even count how many times a kid was in trouble for using bad language, and when their parents came in, the parents started cussing the kid out, for cussing. And I'm like, gee, I wonder where they got that from. Other times, kids would get in trouble for sneaking some booze to school and drinking it with some of their friends. And the parents would come and go, I want to know where you got that alcohol. In your cabinet. (laughs) It's like, there's this inconsistency. And so he said, what they say is fine. You can listen to what they say, but you don't want to be like them. People ultimately will not follow the leadership of someone who doesn't practice what they preach. And that's at the heart of what he's getting at here with everything. But then he goes on in verse 4 and says, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. He said they load everybody else up, but they aren't willing to practice what they preach. They aren't willing to carry those burdens. They tell you to do it, but they sure wouldn't do it. They tell you to trust God, but they're not going to trust God. I, I remember years ago, I, was, I had a friend that, there was a, it was a really problematic marriage, but I was like, I don't know what to tell this guy because it's a horrible marriage, but there isn't a technicality of biblical grounds for divorce. And so I'm like, what are you doing? I went and talked to Pastor Chuck, and he goes, he said, you know, Jesus told the Pharisees that, you know, don't put a burden on people that you yourself aren't willing to bear. And he said, so here's the thing. 
I would have a hard time telling someone to do something that if I said, if I'm in your shoes, I don't know if I would do it. But that was the Pharisees. Oh, they know what you ought to do, but what they do, a little different. It's easy to put burdens on other people. But then, and this is probably the core in verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. You know what? Everything they're doing is for appearance. They are doing faith in God. They are, oh, the Jewish leaders. But it's all a show. It's all a production. And the Pharisees were really great at putting on a show. And they, were, they really cared about how they looked to others. They cared more about how they looked than they cared about actually who they were. You understand how Jesus would be telling his disciples this? Because of the fact that once the church that represents Jesus becomes about a show or a presentation or just about how you look to others, how many followers do you have, how you present your case, your headshots, your selfies, your like your one minute messages. No, those <laughs> I know those don't impress anyone. But it's this picture of how do we look? How much money do we spend on advertising? How much do we develop our presentation so that people are impressed? How do we communicate to others why they should be with us instead of somebody else? We're putting on a show. That was exactly what the Pharisees were doing. It was just a show. And Jesus said, that's on them? But Jesus could see the future and go, Someday, you guys might decide that you're representing me with a show. You're putting on a presentation, a performance that really, ooh, it impresses people. I mean, don't you think that Jesus, as God, if he really wanted to put on a show, he could have done an amazing show. He could have made colored smoke come out long before it was invented. He could have just like, hey, check this out, and flown around the room. There's so much that he could have done. Who was it that wanted Jesus to put on a show? It was the devil. The devil told him, jump off. Turn the rocks into bread. Let, you bow down to me, and I'll have you, everyone else bowing down to you. Jesus rejected show business. He rejected doing something because it would make him look impressive. Because he understood, that's not real life. See, if people come to a show, they have to leave and live real life. And so Jesus lived amongst them. He was with them. He was one of them in every way that he could. The Pharisees created a distance by them looking good. And boy, they cared about what you thought of them. But at the same time, what they're doing, it's just for show. He goes on and says, they love the best places at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogue. They love showing off. They love to have the respect and admiration of people. And then he goes on, for you, down in verse 8, don't even be called rabbi. For one is your teacher, the Messiah. 
And you're just all brothers. Don't call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. Now, people will use this and say, oh, therefore, nobody should be called father at all, even my father. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, don't take the term father as being, this elevates me above you. This makes me someone different. Not, you know, okay, there are some people who are teachers, and the Bible calls people your spiritual father, it calls people your teacher. But what he's saying is in the context of these Pharisees, that you don't want to wear a title that makes you somebody special. I know there are people who think that, oh, because I'm a pastor, that, oh, they have to protect me like they don't want to cuss in front of me or they don't want to tell me something because uh oh they're I'm gonna tell God on them or something it's like that was the Pharisees that that's not God that wasn't Jesus Jesus hung out with people who were really messed up and he connected with them he didn't act like I'm superior to you it must be disgusting when there is this promotion of individuals that on some way are put on a pedestal away from all the regular people. That's not what Jesus did. That's not what he called his disciples to do. It's not what he wants us to do. It's what the Pharisees and scribes did. And he's like, someday when you guys are involved in the church, I'm about to die. I'll rise, I'll go, I'll leave you in charge. At that time... I don't want you giving yourself titles. I don't want you to be like, and you know, if somebody goes, hey, Dave, like I'm going to be offended. I'm not offended if people call me Pastor Dave because Pastor's a shepherd, and that's nice, but I don't care if you call me Dave either. I'm not like, excuse me, it's Pastor Dave. If anything, titles, a doctorate, it just stands between you and people. And when people see you that way, it doesn't connect you. And so he's saying, learn the lesson from these guys. Nobody respects them. Everyone looks at them and thinks, what a bunch of losers, that they are so insecure that they are elevating and promoting themselves. He goes, don't be like that. Don't go for titles. But then, as opposed to that in verse 11, but he who is greatest among you, shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Again, this is the last week of his life. He's been telling them this stuff all along. But the things that he talked about and the things that he did in the last week of his life are incredibly important, right? It's like your last chance to communicate. And over and over again, in fact, it was in this last week, when he washed their feet to show them You're not better than anybody else. I want you to serve each other. That's where greatness comes from. Not in promoting yourself. Not in saying, well, excuse me. Do you know who you're talking to? But in saying, I just want to serve. Because Jesus is our master and he served all the way to his death. Never complained about it. He never treated people like, well, you're not as important as I am. Can you imagine when they're asking questions? If Jesus had gone, I could answer that, but you're too stupid to ever understand it. Um, Not only that, how dare you even question me? I am your Lord and Savior. 
So get in line, shut up, and do what I tell you to do. Instead, he was so patient. He was so kind. He connected with them. He lived among them. And he says, beware in the future. If the leaders of my church become those who separate themselves, who promote themselves, who are those who ultimately want titles and they don't want to serve, if the leaders become those who need a bunch of people around them to serve, then what does that say? It's not, Jesus didn't do that. He walked around with a handful of guys and most of them were cowards. And he's like, no, I'm good. You know, the one guy, Peter, tried to defend him. Finally, in the end, didn't go very well. Cut a guy's ear off, and then Jesus healed it. And he's like, come on, Jesus, I'm trying to help here. But so he's letting him know, no, you want to be great? You should. But you will be great by being a servant. Then he goes in verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Wow. That's, that's the most horrible consideration and accusation of all. Your job is to bring people to God. But what you're doing, the way that you're doing it, the way you are looking out for yourself, you're turning people away from God. You're supposed to be saving people from destruction and you're sending them to destruction because they go, if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, I don't want anything to do with it. Do you understand the responsibility, the, the sober you know, thought of not only that can I bring people to God, but... Or am I actually chasing people away from God? That's what the Pharisees had been doing, and that's what Jesus is warning his disciples. Please don't ever do that. You're keeping other people out. And then he goes on in verse 14 and says, you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers. Oh, you can sure pray a good game. And you're making sure you got the offering and you're taking money from people and you're using their money. Well, who are you taking the money from? Often the people who are the most underprivileged. It's why Jesus called attention to the widow who was at the temple putting her last two pennies into the offering because it would only be somebody who had almost nothing that would do that. The most generous people per capita, percentage-wise, are going to be the people who have the least. So you're collecting money, and whatever you're doing with it, do you understand that people gave you that money because they wanted to give it to God? And some of them are broke. Some of them are widows. The irony that you would balance your high and mighty lifestyle on the backs of, of widows and orphans, and, and then pray your long spiritual prayers. And then in verse 15, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. These, these Pharisees love to be missionaries. They like to travel all over the world. Oh, next week I'm going here, and then we're heading over here, and yep, we're seeing the world, and we're giving the message. And when somebody ends up following you, they become a Pharisee. You go connect with people in some other country, and you like travel. But the people that you're ministering to, what do they become? 
so often they'll become like you. I remember years ago, I used to go down every year and speak at a pastor's conference in uh, El Salvador. And there were a bunch of pastors there. And first time that I went there to speak, they, they, told, they got us together and they said, oh, you have to understand that in order to speak, they think it's a big deal that you wear a, like a nice shirt, dress shirt, and tie. So you can't go into the pulpit to represent God without wearing a tie. And I didn't think about it that much. I'm like, okay, fine. I don't, you know, I wear ties to funerals. But <laughs> so I went along with it. And every year it was kind of that way. But then one year, Brian Broderson came to the conference to speak. And they gave him that talk. They go, Brian, you know, everybody needs to wear a tie. Brian goes, forget it. I'm not going to wear a tie. And we're like, oh, Chuck's going to be mad. But, you know, so Brian just went up in a regular short sleeve shirt and he taught, did well. And the next year, nobody was wearing ties. All of a sudden, they learned a new tradition that you could actually be casual. So he's saying to the Pharisees, you guys take your traditions and then you push it on other people. You take your culture and you shove it down the throats of people with other cultures instead of going over there and explaining to them that God loves them, that Jesus died for them, that they can be forgiven. You go over there and you teach them how to dress and how to talk and how to act and they need to learn your language and they need it. He goes, what good are you doing? They are no better than you are. You are traveling the world just so that you can simply make other people like you, which is nothing to brag about. Powerful. He goes on and calls them blind, leading the blind, and they swear by this or swear by that. And down in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, you know, these little herbs, You're so careful, and you've neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Oh, you follow the rules meticulously. But as Jesus had communicated, the whole law is this. Love God and love other people the way you love yourself. That's the law. So you're teaching all kinds of stuff, but you don't even care about people. You're not representing God in a way that they go, I think this person is coming from a God who actually loves me, not who's disgusted by me, not who says, you're a mess and I'm going to change everything about you and I'm going to make you look like me. Instead, it was, you know, it was supposed to be a message of love. But no, actually what you do is you're a blind leader of the blind. You strain out a gnat in verse 24, and you swallow a camel. They would like, according to Jewish law, if a gnat got in your mouth, you needed to choke on it and spit it out. Because it wasn't kosher, because it had a small amount of blood in it. So he's like, yeah, you want, you're so picky about the rules, but you're swallowing a camel. You don't even know what you're doing. What you are doing in violation of the Spirit of God is so much worse than swallowing a gnat. Your priorities are all messed up. And then he goes on and says, verse 25, you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside it's full of extortion 
and self-indulgence. You're just a complete crook, but you look good on the outside. Congratulations. Blind Pharisee first cleansed the inside of the cup and the dish. He goes on and says, you're like whitewashed tombs. There's bones inside, but oh, the outside of it looks really beautiful. You guys look good on the outside, but God cares about what's in your heart. And your heart is messed up. People can see that, and that's what's driving them away from God. You appear outwardly righteous, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness and goes on to finish it up. Ultimately, then he concludes by weeping over Jerusalem. This shows you his heart. Here's the contrast. Pharisees and legalism and judgmentalism and celebrity and promotions and hype. Here's the other side. Jesus looking over Jerusalem from the hill on the Mount of Olives, crying out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets, this is verse 37, and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted, in the King James it says, how I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. So your house is left to you desolate. And I say, you won't see me anymore until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus looking at a lost world. Jesus looking at the city of Jerusalem and going, man, I wanted to gather you so intensely that you refused. This is another one of those scriptures that, as I thought about it more, convinced me more and more that the idea of Calvinism, that you know you have to be chosen in order to become a Christian, um, sounds good when you're chosen. But here's Jesus weeping over Jerusalem saying, I wanted to save you so badly. But what blocked it? I guess you weren't elect. You weren't chosen. No, he said, I wanted to, and you wouldn't. Now, if you're here today or you're listening, I want you to know God's looking at you, and he's saying, everything within me wants to bring you into my love and my presence, and my family. And I get it that you have a lot of reasons. There are a lot of phonies out there that claim to be following me, but man, I love you so much, I died for you. And, but the ball's in your court. Will you or won't you? That's the question we all have to answer. Will we allow him to forgive us? Or do we decide not to? The ball is totally in our court. But again, the context, Jesus is warning the disciples, the way you do what you do is going to have an impact on whether or not people go to heaven. I'm dying after being tortured so that people can come to heaven. What are you willing to do? Get off your high horse? Get over yourself? Get, you know, give up some of your fancy way of doing things? Give up your celebrity you know, lifestyle enough? To actually touch people by serving them, not by impressing them with how great you are? He says, here's my heart. Where's yours? Because the truth is, and, he, and by the way, I have to say this. Most of these Pharisees started out with really good hearts. 
You don't become a Pharisee because you're thinking someday I'm going to be a powerful leader. And I think that's true of everyone who represents and misrepresents Jesus. They start out just wanting to serve him. And he knew this is where his disciples would be, but he wants them to understand, be careful, because you have to deal with where you go from here. You have to deal with what you become. The truth is, quite often, when you serve and people appreciate it, it can have an effect on you. Like Lord Acton said, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. When you see God using you, it becomes pretty easy for you to fall in love with that appreciation, with that glory, with that the accolades, with people calling you, oh, teacher, rabbi, father. So he's letting them know now. It's all about letting people know that I want them. And the only way you can do that is by acting like me, not by acting like Pharisees. So... We have to ask ourselves, are there some times when we, as the followers of Jesus, put a burden on people that we ourselves can't bear? That we live a double standard or live a double life? Do we make people think that it's all about image? It's all about celebrity? It's all about promotion? We are desperately trying to make ourselves look really special. Representing the one who lived a a horrible life on earth, tortured, killed, rose from the dead, and you're going to represent him with fancy, with promotion, or you're going to be like, yep, I'm jet-setting around on money that came from widows because I'm going to make Jesus famous. Jesus didn't want to be famous. He wanted people to know how much he loved them. He wanted to draw us into a relationship with him whereby he gets it that he is a servant. And if we will be servants too, we can represent him if we learn to do that. And it will make it more possible for more people to not get chased away from the truth, but instead to be drawn to the truth. And so it's a choice. Do we take on the life of a servant or do we promote ourselves And desire to be well thought of? Do we hide who we really are? Pretend like we've got it all together because we're afraid that people won't accept Jesus until they see how awesome we are? Or do we admit the truth? We're all flawed, you know? You shouldn't come to Jesus so that you can be like me. I'm just, if you see me and you know that I'm a mess, but you know that I'm counting on Him for what he says that he will do for me, then I'm, I, can, I can represent him in some way. But for all of us, the more people think of you, probably the less they're going to think of Jesus as a result. It's just the way it is. Um, there are people who, for every one of us, there are probably people in your life who have shown you this, where it's like, that person was real, That person is who they are, and they weren't pretending anything. I mean, I always think of Pastor Chuck had a big impression on me. And don't get me wrong, Chuck could be a real jerk sometimes. And the fact that I knew he could be a jerk proves that he wasn't hiding anything from me. But, you know, I can remember him getting invited to the White House. 
And I go, wow, are you going to go? No, I'm not going to do that. I saw famous people kissing up to him, wanting, to, wanting him to come and speak at their stuff. Wanting, and it's like, nah, he hung around with electricians and plumbers and construction guys. He felt comfortable there. I saw him give time to people that nobody else would have. It was, it was really odd. I remember one time somebody owned a tailor shop, and they came up and they gave Chuck two tickets for two custom tailor-made suits. I think they probably noticed his cheesy polyester suit and felt bad for him. But So he goes, yeah, yeah look at this. And he throws them in the trash. I go, you're not going to use those? Oh, no. And I grabbed them out of the trash. <laughs> And he just grabbed it from my hand and he took it and just tore it up into little pieces. It makes an impression on you. You know, there are people who, I think of my sister Rose Martinez who's here uh, in this service. And we're going to have a reception for her after third service. So if you want to meet one of my heroes, come back after third and we'll serve you lunch. And Rose can talk a little bit about what God's doing. She's a girl who, as a young girl, went on a short-term missions trip in Thailand. And she's been there now for like 50 years. And just she doesn't care about promoting herself. She has these little kids that she has raised. She's over here bringing one of them to go to college. But she's, you know, these children grow up. Some of them are leaders in the government. They're lawyers. All of her orphanages are now being run by people that she raised. But if you haven't listened to me talk about her, you probably wouldn't even know who she is. That's somebody that I go, whatever else, I know that she's real. Um, There'd be no way that somebody would do what she does without being. There's no incentive in it. And I, I don't want to get choked up, but this week with Vin Scully dying... Ben Scully was a Dodger announcer for 67 years, died at 94. Everyone who's talking about him is like, he was the nicest guy. And I remember as a kid, things in my house were, were horrible. But when I'd go to bed, I had my transistor radio on, and I'm listening to the kindest person that I've ever heard talking about the game that I loved. And it was like, a security blanket for me. And I've heard hundreds of people saying the same thing since he died. Now, I remember a few years ago, I ran into him and, and I told him that. I go, I, I was going through a horrible time as a little kid and your voice kept me going. I said, thanks for being there for me. And he said, well, Dave, thanks for being there for me. And I was like, well, when he retired, he said, I needed you more than you needed me. So do you wonder why people are like, oh, let's retire his number, let's celebrate, it's Vin Scully Day, the street that the stadium's on is Vin Scully, because he never cared about any of that. He's just a guy who, he loved Jesus, I'm thankful that he's in heaven. Oh, there are some people who would say that, oh, I don't know if he's in heaven because he prayed to Mary. Well, when you're more godly than he is, then you can go ahead and judge his theology. But... I don't pray to Mary, but (laughs) but Vince Scully is one of the most godly people I've ever seen in my life. And that's what Jesus is saying. People will understand me when they see that you are loving and caring and that you are acting like I did, that you're making everyone feel like they belong. If you don't do that, 
And instead, all you do is hype and travel and fly everywhere and be all your faces all over everything. How are people supposed to connect that with the little carpenter who worked construction for 30 years of his life and then spent a couple years hanging around with people that everybody thought, oh, a bunch of sleazes, a bunch of losers, a bunch of bad people. That's Jesus. If you're more into what you think you're into that's different than that, make up your own religion. Leave Jesus out of it because Jesus would go, that's not me. And the extent to which the church has become the Pharisees is the extent to which people are dying without Jesus because we are misrepresenting him so horribly. And let's take ownership of that and really face it. That was Jesus' burden in the last week of his life. And it's important that we remember that too. Everything about Jesus was that he was real, that he was the real deal, that his life was lived, boom, right there. Not pretending, not promoting, not worrying about what people think of him. Our life is, you think about it, as you get older, you'll understand. It's like, where did life go? There's that, Trent Reznor wrote a song that Johnny Cash did a great cover of it. The song's called Hurt. But he asks the question, what have I become? And then he talks about his empire of dirt. It's like, you ever take some time to just think, what have I become? Who am I really? I, last week I read a book called In Praise of Risk by a, a French philosopher and, uh, and psychotherapist named Anne Duformantel. She's somebody who wrote a book on risk and before it was published, she rescued two girls who were drowning and she died rescuing them. But she made a statement that at first I pushed back against a little bit, but she said, all you have is the present. That's all that's real, the present. She said, the past, it's imaginary. The past only exists because you can see it in your head. You can image it, but it's not real. It's imaginary. The future, imaginary as well. Because I don't know how long the future is going to be. I don't know what's going to happen. I could, of course, I understand my ultimate future with the Lord. But when it comes to this life, all I have is right now. All I have is the present. And that book really challenged me to live now. Like, okay, today, what am I going to do? What risks am I going to take? Because they might make a difference now and maybe to someone else. It might make a difference. And so as Jesus is addressing us as his disciples and warning us of how not to do it, I think how different could things be and how much more credible the gospel could be if we would take on the opportunity to live now representing him. We have, it's why there are four gospels that tell kind of the same story in a lot of ways is because If you understand what he does, then you'll understand the best things for you to do and the best way for you to do them. And I would encourage you, you know, if you maybe you're listening or you're here and you've never entrusted your life to him, um, sorry about that. Sorry about all the stupid 
you know, arrogant, fleshly ways that we represent him in a way that doesn't look like somebody that loves you at all. But he loves you. And he really wants to connect with you. He wants to forgive you. He will do it now if you ask. We'll be celebrating communion in just a moment. And in communion, we have Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to give you something real. This bread, it's a real piece of bread. This cup, it's real juice. It's not real wine for us because, you know, of course, we wouldn't do that. But do this to remember me. Remember, I'm real that my body was actually broken, that my blood was actually shed, and communion calls us back to the reality of his sacrifice for us. The more I forget what he's done for me, the more likely I am to make life about me, to make it about what people think of me or how I appear or what I have or what I might lose or what I'm afraid of. The best way to live In the here and now, to live real is to do what we do at communion and say, okay, Jesus, I'm remembering you right here, right now. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And I thank you that Matthew took the time to record these woes. And we always thought these woes were just about you were really going to tell off the Pharisees. And dang, we find out it's your way of telling us off for being like them. Help us to be real. Help us to be able to look at our lives and say, here I am. The only real benefit that I have is if I can represent Jesus. Teach us to serve for real, not to serve for show. Teach us to do what you call us to do in a way that actually makes people want to know you, especially people who are really broken, because they're the ones, I mean, the people that are doing okay, they're, they're, they'll take a religion, but the people who are really desperate, wondering whether they should live or die, wondering if there's a future, they're the ones that you are there for in a special way. So, Lord, please just draw people to yourself And I pray that by the way we live life, by the way that we serve, that it would represent you well, that it would connect others with you. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you didn't receive a um, communion cup, there's a little uh, bread in the cap and, and the cup. If you didn't.